This podcast is brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Keep Joy on air by becoming a member, a subscriber or donate. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community. Taking a look at the issues surrounding the health and well-being of our LGBTIQ plus communities. This is Well, 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 brought to you by the team from Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. Here on Well, 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 we delve into the issues impacting and surrounding the health and well-being of our gender, sex and sexually diverse communities. Coming to you from Joy's Victorian Pride Centre studios on Boonwurrung Country, I'm your host, Jack Ranjanan, joined this episode by Cal Hawk. G'day, g'day. How are you going? I'm doing all right. Yourself? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Uh, I imagine you've been walking your dog in the uh, fairly warm weather before it starts getting a little bit crisper here in Melbourne. Well, you're walking the dog throughout the year, come rain or shine. Well, and you're sometimes. enjoying it more. You're enjoying it more uh, while yes, it's warm. Yes, absolutely. And, and which is also about this week's episode. Okay. I'm very excited. Um, so I got to watch a presentation at the Australian Research Centre for Sex, Health and Society last week. Mm. And thankfully, this presenter who's currently visiting from the UK is actually joining us on the show this week. So they are the Professor of Communication and Social Interaction, and they're also a psychologist over at Loughborough University over in the UK. And that's Professor Elizabeth Peel. And Liz is joining us here on the show now. Thanks for joining us here on Well, Well, Well. How are you, Liz? I'm great, thank you, and it's great to be on today. Now, we have you joining us actually from Adelaide at the moment because you, you've been here in Australia actually presenting some of your research, but we want to dive right into that. So can I ask you to tell us a little bit about the Dog Talking and Walking Project? Oh, absolutely. So um, I started this project a year ago when I was lucky enough to get some research leave um, from my university at Loughborough. And I was interested in how people are communicating and interacting with dogs and how that's changed during the pandemic, um, the extent to which dogs support human social interaction and how dogs support physical activity in different groups of adults, one of those being the LGBTQ community, which I've got a particular interest in. So as a professor of communication and social interaction and as a psychologist, what in particular drew you to focus on the relationship between animal companions uh, and human beings and mm. our well-being? Yeah, absolutely. So, so I think generally psychology overlooks our relationships with non-human animals. We're very human-centric in the way that we go about our research and education. And I'd done some research some years ago when I was looking at people living with type 2 diabetes, actually. And what I'd found was those people who'd had access to a dog or walked a dog were those people that had basically continued to remain physically active because it's a really easy way of embedding regular physical activity in your daily life if you've got access to a dog. So I, so I wrote this paper analysing this and published it in the British Journal of General Practice. This was back in 2010. And then for various reasons, I didn't get a chance to kind of pursue that area of interest. And then um, sadly, during the pandemic, um, my older dog um, passed away. Oh. So he was 15. Um, and it just made me think, you know what? This is such an important area. I knew from my own experience how important both of my dogs had been during that time. And because you know, human relationships were just so remote and strained and challenged by the way that we had to live during the pandemic, I thought this would be a really nice time to explore uh, people's relationships with their dogs in a little bit more depth. 
Yeah, I love that. I actually remember during the pandemic hearing stories about in some countries, because when countries and, and cities, Melbourne, I guess we've kind of won the the most locked in competition. But one of the yeah. exemptions was that you, you know, could go out if you were taking your uh, your your dog out. Absolutely. There were some very, very well walked dogs during that time. <laughs> There really was. And certainly, um, I mean, in the UK where I was, um, the rule was you could go out once a day. But actually, on animal welfare grounds, the RSPCA sort of lobbied the government to say, you know, really, you should be letting people out that have dogs more than once a day, recognising that, you know, that's not enough for a lot of a lot of dogs or indeed a lot of humans. Yeah, just yeah. Keep on walk. And that reflection that you had, too, around, I guess, uh, animal com- animal companions and people living with diabetes. I've talked about on the show before, I've had a previous experience with chronic um, like pain management. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that I found kind of remarkable in retrospect was that even if I was having severe back pain, I would somehow still have the strength to get out and go out the door and get the dog walked twice a day. It's sort of my brain kind of switched off that focus (laughs) and (laughs) it was still getting out. So it adds this structure that um, I think translates it really into a lot of different health conditions so yeah yeah. i agree i agree and i think you know for a lot of people managing a a chronic condition there's something about how routinized the dog walking is and how actually yes it's beneficial to people but you know nobody wants to live with a dog that's not been exercised you know it's not it's not good for anybody you know that's when kind of destructive behaviors happen and it's you know it's so important for them that actually that caring connection I think sometimes allows people to transcend, you know, their own difficulties and their own pain. Oh, I, that a hundred percent. I mean, that at least has been the case in my experience in the past. Mm-hmm. Now I want to get back to what you're saying around this recruitment and you were looking for, for folks to participate in the dog talking and walking project. How easy was it to get folks to participate? Well, it depends on the kind of folks. So, so if you're a white middle-class woman, no problems at all. <laughs> I really didn't struggle recruiting um, that particular demographic. And I think in part it's because, you know, caring for, for animals um, is, is quite a gendered activity and associated, I think, with women historically. Um, so I, I, I kind of tried to push the groups that, that I'm particularly interested in to, to take part. So I, I've got an interest in people living with dementia as, as well. And I and I sort of actively targeted that group. I was interested in people of colour and black and minority ethnic heritage, largely because, you know, there are some cultural barriers really for people to engage in, in animal companionship. It's quite dominated by, by white groups. So I really wanted to try and include those people. Um, LGBTIQ people, I mean, that's that's my community and I've, I've done research on, on LGBTQ plus groups for, for many years. So I wanted to make sure it was diverse in terms of sexuality and, and gender diversity. And men as well. I mean, men are kind of underrepresented. And in fact, when I was um, encouraging people to participate, I went on the local radio back in Leicestershire, which is where Loughborough University is. And I and I put out a call, um, you know, trying to recruit people to the survey component of the study. And uh, interestingly, it kind of worked because I, you know, in the survey, I remember one particular person wrote, I was actually walking my dog at the time and I listened to you on the radio. And because you said you wanted more men to take part, I took part in your survey. So it was it was great from that point of view. 
Um, I was also interested because of the timing of the survey, it was just after when in the UK that all of the pandemic restrictions were lifted. So I launched it about a week after that in April of last year. So I was very interested in, in trying to target people who'd either got a dog or lost a job during the pandemic, because that was kind of, you know, fresh in, in people's minds. And although, you know, it was predominantly a British-based um, project, I did have, you know, a range of different countries engage in it, which, you know, with, a, with an internet survey, it has that potential global reach, which is wonderful. Um, but alas, only two people from Australia uh, took part. <laughs> uh, but there were, you know, there were great participants, even though it was just the two from Australia. Good to hear. Um, I, I'm just curious, I suppose, how successful were you in finding um, respondents in those groups um, to participate in the survey? Were you confident in the data you got from those those varied groups? Yes, I, th I think so. Um, I mean, overall, um, the proportion of people um, from the LGBTQ community was 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 small, but not as small as the size of of that population, um, essentially. So overall, in the survey, so I got six hundred and seventy three people take part. Um, 96% were white, um, so it was um, you know dominated by white people in terms of ethnicity. Um, but in terms of the LGBTQ um, component, it was, I'm just trying to get the figures out in front of me now, um, it, it was um, a decent number, it was 93% it was of the survey sample, so that was, sorry, 93 people, so nearly 14% of the survey sample, which is actually much higher than you would get in the general population. And we, we do kind of know that in terms of households, um, with um, dogs particularly, that about a, th a, third, a quarter to a third of households live with a, with a dog as a companion animal, and estimates suggest it's about half of LGBTQ people, possibly up to as much as 70%, although the estimates are quite hazy. So you would expect that, that there would be a reasonable representation from LGBTQ plus um, groups uh, within a study on, on companion animals. So just to make sure I'm following that, is that saying that LGBTIQ people from your research, we have pet or we have dogs at least at a higher rate than the mainstream population? Yes, it seems to be the case. Yes. I mean, I mean, there's not been, you know, rigorous kind of, um, you know, uh, estimates and, and often actually in terms of the general population estimates are based on the amount of, of dog food that's consumed. So, you know, <laughs> um, it's that kind of data. Um, and often, you know, in a lot of places, there's, there's not very rigorous data on how, you know, the percentage of LGBTQ people in the population. So in Britain, we've only just start, started to collect that in our census data very, very recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are, there's, there, there is the sense that, you know, for, you know, we might say for, you know, some reasons that are reasonably obvious, often, you know, LGBTQ people don't have children. So, you know, you know, for some, the dog is the next best thing if you don't, if you don't have a, have a child. Um, and, you know, there are, I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I'm sort of fairly convinced that we probably have 
dogs and cats um, more than more than the general population. We're continuing the conversation here on Well, 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 uh, you with Jack and Cal, and we're joined by Liz Peel, Professor uh, in Communication and Social Interaction about the Dog Talking and Walking Project. Um, Liz, I, I suppose we've done a lot of uh, scene setting, I, I guess, for uh, the research itself. Um, in the overall study, what were some of the major findings about the impact of dogs um, as our animal companions on our mental health and, and physical well-being? Yeah, so um, certainly it's generally very positive um, in terms of the impacts on well-being um, and on, on, on you know, how, how we are. Um, as a sort of a general finding. What, one of the things that did surprise me, though, was that I was expecting, I think, people across the board to really emphasise how much the pandemic had impacted on their relationship with their, with their dog. And when we looked at the, the quantitative findings from the survey, what we found was actually it was just younger participants that reported that their dog was more impacted by the pandemic and that their relationship with their dog had changed significantly more than older participants, which surprised me. Um, There's a lovely quote from one of the the participants who was actually a young gay man, um, 27 year old. And I think this just really signals that sort of sense of anxiety in those early days of the pandemic. So So he said, I'm very close to him, but over lockdown, especially in the beginning. I slept in his basket with him. I was so worried. So that's just, I think, such a, you know, it makes me, you know, it's heart-rendering quote, really, on how, you know, impacted um, younger people were um, by the pandemic and how important dogs were in relation to that. But funnily enough, um, okay, the, the quantitative findings suggested there wasn't that much of an impact, but there were lots of quotes from people that talked about how it really helped them cope with the mental health impacts of the pandemic, having mm. a dog, and also losses um, and bereavement that people had experienced. So, you know, one participant said, you know, we got our dog to help us after losing my mum to COVID. Um, and you know, somebody else said, you know, we bought our dog during the pandemic and she's changed our lives for the better. She's been my mental health medicine. So, you know, that that idea of a kind of a real positive in terms of mental health and well-being and that sort of regular, embedded, moderate physical activity really does kind of shine through, I think, in, in, the, in the study and the findings. To that, I suppose, quantitative evidence you were talking about, there not being, uh, it seemed like that much of an impact, but qualitative, it, it seemed quite drastic. Mm-hmm. It, is that confusing to you, I suppose? At, at face value, maybe as someone who doesn't come from a research background, it seems rather at odds. Yeah, it kind of does. Uh, I mean, I'm I mean, I'm mean, very much a qualitative researcher rather than a, a quantitative researcher. Um, so I guess for me personally, I always tend to look to um, people's experiences and, and, and what they're saying about their experiences and taking that as the kind of, you know, the litmus test of the truth of the matter, really, um, often kind of tests and scales. So we, we use some standardized measures like the pet attachment and lifestyle scales. And they're, they're quite blunt instruments, some of these tools, I would say. So so yeah, there's a there's a contrast there. Um, but I think generally what I tend to favor is to look at how people talk about their experiences um, as the as the real kind of sense of of the heart of the matter rather than rather than the the stats. But but you're right, there is there is a bit of a contradiction 
there. Um, but, you know, just because something's not statistically significant doesn't mean it's not significant for people um, in their lives. And I think actually, in terms of the, the, the mental health and physical health impacts during the pandemic, especially, it was, you know, significant, if not statistically significant for everybody, really, um, that, that took part in the survey and the interviews. You recently presented at La Trobe University at the Australian Research Center for Sex, Health and Society about mm-hmm. animal companionship and LGBTIQ people's health and well-being. I, I want to ask you, first of all, what brought you to Australia to, to bring your research down here? Well, I, I've got lots. I'm very lucky. I've got lots of colleagues, um, both at, at La Trobe and ANU in Canberra and at Flinders and at Adelaide universities. So, um, you know, it, this for me actually is a, is a bit of a sort of a, I suppose, a post-pandemic academic exploration back to a part of the world that I absolutely love. It's, it's a wonderful country. And I find that, you know, the academic networks here and the community networks are just so welcoming and so, so inclusive that it's just a real privilege. It's not the first time I've been. I, I came last time I was here was 10 years ago. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, that's a long time not to not to be, um, you know, in, in Australia. So it's it's really wonderful to reconnect with people. And actually, for, for some folk, it's been the first time they've been back in the room um, actually listening, you know, in person um, to somebody talking about about their research. And that actually, you know, it's something that we took for granted. And now I think, you know, we recognise that it's a real privilege to have that kind of embodied face to face interaction. Um, and I guess, you know, going back to the, the dog talking and walking projects, um, that was something that that people had as a constant, you know, their, their, their furry companions were there day in, day out with, with no judgment, you know, with no, you know, concern about what was happening um, to, to us as human beings during that time. Now, taking coming back to that research, how does canine companionship help our LGBTQ uh, com- communities? I think it. I think it helps tr- tremendously. I mean, having said that, you know, it's not for everybody. If if you don't like dogs, um, or if you know there are cultural reasons why you would want to keep dogs at a distance, or allergy reasons, then it's not. You know, it's not a panacea like like anything um, is. But for those people that that love dogs, I think there's something about that unconditionality that is particularly powerful for LGBTQ folk. So, um, for example, very good colleague of mine, Damien Riggs, who's based at Flinders, has been looking at um, the relationship with trans young people and their dogs. And what him and his colleagues have suggested is that it acts as a really strong buffer against cisgenderism. Uh, and it is really about, you know, that that you know that unconditional, no no judgment about your identity, about your gender, about your sexuality, you know, wholly accepting of who you are as a human being. And I think, you know, that's powerful for lots of lots of people. But I think for LGBTQ plus communities, it's especially powerful and especially welcome, I think, at a time where, you know, there are there are elements of our community that have been really quite horribly attacked um, on social media and in public. And I think, you know, at, at times where, you know, we, we feel or, or, or members of our community feel really under threat and, and in a not progressive way that, you know, the power of that of that buffer 
um, and and sort of unconditionality from a dog is just hugely powerful, I think. One of the findings you mentioned as well during your presentation uh, was around how they can almost act as a, I guess, social lubricant to some extent to connect yes. with community members. Could you tell us a little bit yeah. about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this is this so-called pet effect is a really powerful thing. And I think for queer folk, um, it's, it, well, for, for many people, but for queer pet folk particularly, you know, the idea that, you know, a, a dog, it provides that, kind, it's almost a bit like the weather as a topic of conversation, but like, you know, a, a kind of a sentient, you know, fluffy version um, that's a safe topic of conversation that I think potentially can bring communities of people together. So I'm thinking particularly of one of my participants who is a, a, a lesbian woman living in a suburb of London, and she's she's got a beagle, and she used to see this guy um, who you know looked quite threatening actually um, with a with a staffy, and her beagle and his staffy got along absolutely brilliantly. So you know started to develop a conversation with somebody who she said to me in the interview, you know she would worry in another context that a hate crime was about to happen, um, and you know there was a bit of kind of confusion. This this guy in the park thought that her her partner was her mother, um, you know, and there was a little, you know, there was a, a lot of kind of heterosexism and heteronormativity kind of at work. But in the end, because of the connection between the dogs, she plucked up the courage to kind of correct him on his, you know, assumption or wrong assumption about her relationship um, and came out. And, you know, and this guy kind of responded, oh, well, you know, that's, that's fine, takes all sorts which, you know, she felt that if it hadn't have been for that connection with the dogs, that, that you know, that connection wouldn't have maybe gone in such a sort of positive way in that kind of context. Um, so, so, so there's that, you know, this idea that, you know, because the dogs are a neutral topic of conversation, they just kind of bring, bring people together across communities in a way that just enables that, you know, that, that, incidental kind of you know how are you fine thanks how are you which actually you know people have kind of missed i think so it's it's become quite meaningful i think in recent times yeah you're often in this fixed position because you're if you've let the dogs off the lead and you're in a confined park so to speak you're you're not just sort of continually moving around you're kind of in a fixed spot and you may as well chat if you're there <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, I'm not saying, you know, everybody wants to engage in kind of, you know, chit chat with folks in the dog park. Um, you know, some people actively want to avoid that and and kind of, you know, want to run in the opposite direction because, you know, they, you know, maybe they've got a particularly cute dog. So everybody wants to talk to them um, about their dog and, you know, their you know, busy lives and they don't have time. Um, but I think, you know, when people talk about taking that view on it, they recognise that, you know, this kind of social lubricant dog facilitated communication element is a kind of a social norm that they're kind of sort of deviating from, if you like, by actively kind of avoiding talking to other people when they're when they're out and about. Would and it's any... that neutrality of, of the dogs as a topic that I think, you know, it's safe and neutral. Did we see any variables or I guess in the findings with regard to the dog, with, whether that be the breed or the temperament of the dog? Did that make a difference in people's experiences at all? I think um, certainly 
perhaps not specific breeds, but I think certainly on this point of kind of dog facilitated social interaction, if you have a dog that look, looks either looks threatening or behaves in a threatening way when you're out and about, they can act as a bit of a disincentive um, for people to communicate with each other. Um, when you when you're out walking or in the you know standing around in the dog park or whatever, so so that can be um, a factor I think, and and some of the interviewees actually sort of said you know we're able to kind of compare their own experiences. So um, there was one bisexual woman who I interviewed who had previously had a dog that looked quite aggressive even though it wasn't. Um, and now she's got this very, very kind of affable Labrador that's determined to make friends with every dog that this this dog encounters when it's in the park. So, and her, and her previous dog not only looked aggressive, but was a bit aloof. So there, I think there is something about how the dog engages both with other dogs and other humans that can either kind of strengthen or kind of push away the ability for people to, to interact around having a dog. I want to ask you before we run out of time here, where to from here? Like, is the research continuing or are you going to take it in another direction? What's next? So I'm currently now um, basically getting folk to video elements of their everyday lives with their dogs. So I'd really like to see things like the, you know, the pet effect actually in action in people's daily lives rather than people talking about um, what happens. So that's one area that I'm that I'm pursuing. And I think in terms of, you know, queer folks specifically, there's a lot more research that can be done in this in this area. And I really just feel that I've kind of scratched the surface um, and there's lots more to do. Um, another thing that I think would be brilliant is, you know, in, in this kind of area more broadly, people have kind of focused on either sort of special populations. So, you know, the trans kids is one example, or indeed trained assistance dogs or therapists. Um, and I'd quite like to see us sort of normalise um, research and education uh, that includes animal companions. Often, you know, they're seen as a sort of a marginal or a specialist concern. And I'd really like to see, you know, more psychological research, more, you know, more research across the social sciences generally, just being much more inclusive of our non-human companions and a bit less focused just on, on human beings. I think I think we we, sh we do we do other animals a disservice by not including them in in the research and, and, and writing that we do. Well, Liz, that is, I think, all the time that we have. But I, I you know, have probably a hundred more questions as a dog owner. <laughs> as I, I have, I'm a double dog owner, so my partner and I, we actually got a second one not too long ago. Oh, wonderful! Um, so, what what are your dogs? I have a six year old German short haired pointer and a nine month old Hungarian Vishla. Oh, wonderful. Oh, well, Vizslas are, I think, quite challenging. So you might have your work cut out with your Vizslas. Oh, oh wonderful, well and truly. <laughs> well and truly. But that's a whole other show. Professor yeah. Elizabeth Peel from Loughborough University, thank you so much for joining us here on Well, Well, Well. Thank you for having me. It's been great. That is it for the show this week. Um, if you missed part of this episode, uh, or you want to li listen to uh, any of our other episodes, you can find them on the Joy website, joy.org.au slash well, well, well. And if you have any feedback or suggestions for topic discussions for us, uh, you can let us know uh, well, well, well at joy.org.au. Uh, but that is it for this episode. Thanks for joining us and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Well, 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 supported by Thorn Harbour Health on Joy and the Community Radio Network. 
For more LGBTIQ plus health and wellbeing and much more, check out Thorn Harbour on social media at Thorn Harbour or via the website thornharbour.org. Thanks for listening to another Joy podcast brought to you by Australia's LGBTQIA plus community media organisation, Joy. Help keep Joy on air. Head to joy.org.au. Joy, a diverse sound for a diverse community.